this is crucial. Notice that there is a contrast being drawn, but it's not a contrast between faith and obedience. Okay? It's not like you got faith on one side and you got obedience on the other. The good guys are the ones who have faith, and the bad guys are the ones who have obedience. I mean, it's not faith and obedience that are being set in opposition to one another in these passages, but two kinds of obedience. Hello and welcome to another barnstorming episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I being Matt Swain, my colleague being Ken Hensley, and we're with the Coming Home Network. If you like what you're hearing, want to hear more, hit the subscribe button. We would love to hear from you. You can also visit us at chnetwork.org. The Coming Home Network is an organization, a network of people from every background imaginable who have every level of interest in the church. Some of them are people like Ken and I, former Baptists in his case, former you know, evangelical of a Wesleyan variety in my case who came into the Catholic Church, and we'd love to hear from you. Ken, are you ready to get into more sola fide stuff today? Yeah, and in fact, I woke up this morning feeling like I might have like a little fever coming on. Okay. I don't think I do. I mean, I've, I've checked it. I don't, but I'm kind of hyper, so I'm, I'm, dead, I'm d- deadly ready. All right, so the only prescription for that fever is more on the journey with Matt and Ken, so yeah. <laughs> I guess that's what we got to do. All right, so we have talked about sola fide in a few different ways, and before mm-hmm. we get into St. Paul you know, in, in a fuller sense, kind of recap our journey so far. We did promise last week we were, we were going to get into Paul, and for reasons that you will see, we're going to, it'll be next week that we really get into Paul in a serious way. But anyway, to recap where we're going, we're talking about sola fide, the, the, the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone. And what, what I've been doing in this short series, I think this is episode number four of the series, is... Um, trying to relate the process of thought, again, the process of reasoning that led me over the course of some years, really, in fact, quite a few years, away from the Reformation doctrine of justification, sola fide, by faith alone, and toward the Catholic understanding of justification. So let me recap the steps. Step one for me was coming to see that throughout the Old Testament, in story after story after story, both faith, as we've seen, and obedience, the obedience that flows from this faith, were, were required in order to receive God's blessing. And most importantly, here's really the key, never is there even a hint that this somehow amounts to something bad, like legalism. I mean, Noah has to trust God and build an ark in order to be saved. Abraham has to trust God and leave Ur of the Chaldees and travel on foot in order to receive the inheritance of the land of Canaan. Moses and the children of Israel, they have to trust God and slaughter the lamb and spread the blood and eat the lamb and leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea and walk along on blistered feet all the way to the land of Canaan over 40 years. Naaman the Syrian, he has to trust the word of Elijah. It's Elisha. And also dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. It's always faith and obedience. The entire Old Testament, I came to see was filled with the stories of men and women in their relationships with God. And in every single case, obedience is a condition 
It's an actual condition for their receiving the promised blessing. And for some reason, never ever is this viewed as somehow diminishing the status of the blessing they receive as being gift, as being God's gift to them. For some reason, God is never viewed as having been robbed of his glory because they had to obey. For some reason, man isn't given a reason to boast in his works, even though he had to obey. You see what I'm saying? So basically, here's step one, is that this revelation of what the Old Testament was all about, it shattered for me one of the key lines of reasoning really at the heart of the Protestant paradigm, and that is that if obedience is a condition for receiving God's blessing, then we no longer have a system of grace. We now have entered into a damning system of works one way or another. And the immediate objection that you would have had and that anybody watching this from a Reformed background would have is, yeah, but all those guys you listened to, Abraham, Moses, Naaman, Noah, those are all in the old covenant, you know, yeah, like the old sanctuary that uh, we built the new complex around. Well, okay, that leads us to step two then, which we looked at last week. Step two for me was coming to see that this pattern of obedience being viewed as a condition for receiving the promises of God, that it wasn't, it isn't a pattern that is somehow reversed when we come to the New Testament. Rather, it continues right on through. Um, at the heart of the Reformed doctrine, again, is this notion, you just stated it well, that while obedience may have been a condition for receiving God's blessing under the Old Covenant, under the New Covenant, no way, especially when it comes to salvation, especially when it comes to the blessing of justification, in the New Covenant, it's faith alone. And here's how one evangelical theologian put it, in fact, I'm quoting, under the law, under the Old Covenant, the motive for correct conduct, conduct was this, if you obey, you will be blessed, unquote. Under the law of Christ, in other words, the gospel, the order has been completely reversed. The motive for obeying the law of Christ under grace is because we have been blessed rather than in order to be blessed. There, it's sort of a thank reversal. you card that we write to God. You know, we used to, how do we refer to it? Was it the Deuteronomic model of mm -hmm. you do good, good things happen, you do bad, mm -hmm. bad things happen. And, you know, that's the way the old covenant was. You have to say old covenant in spooky voices <laughs> because, you know, it's old and scary, you know, and we're under the grace. Thing is, Amazing. When you say old covenant, you you sound like, um, what's that show? A horse is a horse, of course. Oh, like Mr. Ed? Yeah, Wilbur. The horse where they rub the peanut butter on his gums to make it look like he was talking? I don't even remember. Wilbur. Wilbur. So the old. Yeah. That's all they did. They just, it was the peanut butter on the gums. Okay. Yes. Here's an evangelical theologian stating exactly what you said, Matt. Under the old covenant, the message is, if you obey, you will be blessed. But then, supposedly, under the new covenant, this is completely reversed. Okay, now this is how I have been taught to think myself. But over time, I was struck by the sheer number of New Testament passages that in one way or another seem to be saying precisely what this Protestant theologian has the Old Testament saying. That is, if you obey, you will be blessed. Said a, a number of times throughout the New Testament in one way or another. And said to Christians. Uh, one example that we looked at last week, Galatians chapter 6. Here's Paul near the end of a letter that is supposedly devoted to teaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from obedience. And this is what he says. Do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. It's as though he's saying, look, I've said a lot of things about how justification is by faith and not by works, and so I need to make sure you don't misunderstand me. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap this harvest of eternal life if we do not lose heart. So again, step two for me then was coming to see that according to the Gospels and according to the epistles of the New Testament, to enter our inheritance in Christ, the inheritance of eternal life, we must come to him, we must trust him, believe in him, we must follow him, take up our cross, we must do what he says, we must persevere in all of this throughout the course of our lives. In fact, Jesus makes a point of repeating this, you know, throughout the course of his his teachings, you know, take up your cross and follow me, you know, and and if you turn back, you're not worthy of me. And it, I mean, it's, it's, it's all throughout the teachings of our Lord. Yeah. In fact, one answer that some Protestants would give to that is, well, but Jesus is not talking about what it will take to be saved here. He's talking about what it would take to go to that next step of discipleship, to become a disciple, you know. I mean, you could be saved by faith alone, but if you want to become a disciple, you need to take up your cross and follow. Okay, except that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. He who would lose his life will find it. And he who will, the other way around. You know what I'm saying? He's talking about life. He's talking about finding life, losing life, gaining life, and all that. Okay, so yes, the New Testament is teaching. We come to Christ, we believe in him, we follow him, we obey him, and we persevere in this. And I want to say, just for clarity's sake, this is very important. We'll come back to it in depth later. Yes, it is grace that enables us to be obedient, even as it is grace that enables us to believe, that enables our faith. And yes, we're going to fall a million times. We're not talking about perfection in any way, shape, or form. And a million times, we're going to have to get up in our Christian lives. We're going to have to go back to the fountain of Christ's mercy to receive forgiveness, to receive mercy, to stand up again to take up our bed, as it were, and walk again and again and again. But this is the essential path that is laid out for us in the New Testament. As the author of Hebrews writes, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the confidence we had at first. And and, and confidence includes all of that, trusting Jesus, following him, doing what he said. Okay, but, so in the yeah, light of this... Just to, just no, to be ahead. clear, from the Catholic perspective, it's important to point out that faith uh, is a gift. Yes. Um, so so it's, it's just to be very clear, it's, I mean, it's laid out about as clearly as it could possibly be that you don't come to faith because you're an awesome guy who just thought really hard about things. Faith is yeah, and, a gift. And we're uh, just saying the same thing about obedience now. Obedience is a gift too. I mean, it's all... It's, it's enabled it's all by grace, be, right? It's all going to be enabled by grace. But instead of saying, oh, the faith part enabled by grace, that's the the instrument by which we are saved, and the obedience part, enabled by grace, has nothing to do with it. We're saying both, okay? Both and. Okay, so in the light of this, that that was step one and step two. In the light of this, how was I to understand Paul's explicit and repeated insistence that we are justified by faith, Matt, apart, apart from works, or apart from works of the law? Okay, the answer to this question was step three for me along the road toward embracing the church's view of justification. And this is where I want to focus our discussion today and next week as well. By the First, way, we mean that by that the Catholic Church's 
view of justification, not in your case, the Baptist church's view of uh, justification yeah. or, yeah. Uh, or the Nazarene view of salvation that I would have been imparted when I was saved back, right. you know, in the mid eighties. Okay. So how, how was I to understand Paul's explicit, his repeated statements, we're justified by faith in Christ apart from works. Okay. Let, let me give the bare bones first of the answer, just sort of bluntly state it. Um, and, and then we'll work to put some flesh on the bones. Okay, the answer for me was coming to understand that in the Bible, not all works are the same. Not all, not all obedience is the same. Specifically, or at least more specifically, there is a kind of works, I'm talking about in the Bible, there is a kind of obedience that is required to receive the blessing of God. That is a condition for salvation. And there is another kind of works, another kind of obedience that is absolutely rejected for salvation or for receiving the blessing of God. Okay? And what I'm saying basically, what I will be saying is that when Paul preaches the requirement of obedience, like in Galatians 6 and many other places, he's talking about the first kind of obedience. And when he rejects it, not of works, lest any man should boast, he's referring to the second kind. And so now, Let's try to flesh this out a bit. Yeah, and uh, this is something that you know I always feel like I have a need to ask when I, well, actually, I had the need to ask this as a Wesleyan arguing with my Calvinist mm -hmm. friends, but I do as well as a Catholic argue, arguing with my Calvinist friends, and that is, what kind of works do you think that I think I have to do in <laughs> order to be saved? <laughs> because very often when someone accuses me of believing in salvation by works, they don't even know what they yeah, think like, that I mean by works. Yeah. So, well, well, which is well, why that's this is good. so important of what you're about to go into. Yeah, that's good then, because that's what we're going to try to unpack. And lest those watching or listening suspect that this is just some kind of clever distinction that I've dreamed up or that I have devised in order to get around Paul's clear teaching that salvation is by faith and not by works. Um, let me start by pointing out, Matt, that the distinction I'm drawing here between a kind of obedience, a kind of works that is required by God, and a kind of obedience that is totally rejected, this is a distinction that I think can be easily seen throughout the Bible, not just in Paul. Okay, so let's begin with the first kind of obedience, which I refer to as the obedience of faith. From the beginning, and I'm, I mean from the beginning of salvation history, looking back through Scripture, we can see that there were always those, usually just a remnant, a remnant. There were always those who responded to God's gracious call with humble faith and who walked with God in this obedience that flows from humble faith. These are the Old Testament saints that you and I have been talking about for a couple of weeks now and that are described in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered, see there's the faith and the obedience, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he received approval as righteous, God bearing witness by accepting his gifts. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, took heed and constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and on and on and on. And notice again just quickly, that in each of these examples, notice that faith and the obedience that flowed from that faith were conditions for receiving God's blessing. There's no doubt about that. That's, that's crystal clear. And then notice as well that these Old Testament figures 
are not set forward as examples of men who were trying to somehow earn God's blessings by their works so that they could boast in their achievements before God, etc., etc. In other words, they aren't being presented as illustrations of the evil thing that we all refer to as legalism. Instead, they're presented as those with whom God was pleased and as examples for New Testament believers to emulate. Which is funny because, you know, the the general thing that you sometimes think is whenever the Old Testament is brought up, it's told uh, to us in the New Testament as a way to not be foolish like our ancestors. But that's, yeah. as you just said, Hebrews chapter 11 kind of dispels that myth that there were examples, and those examples were faith leading to obedience leading to blessing. Yeah, and they're set forth as examples for us to model. Again, this kind of obedience then, this is the first kind, this, this sort of obedience, what I refer to as the obedience of faith, and I think Paul, Paul does too. To, to flesh this out a bit more, this is the kind, I mean, if you like an analogy, this is the kind of obedience that a patient gives to a doctor he trusts. Okay, imagine that I have some kind of atrocious disease. Okay, I'm sitting here with advanced leprosy, and I've gone around to all kinds of doctors, and no one knows what to do. No one can do anything, and they say, this is just how it is. Then imagine I find a doctor, Matt, and I go to this doctor, and this doctor listens to me. He, looks, he checks out the leprosy. It's everywhere, and he says to me, okay, I want you to do this. Here are some herbs. I want you to put it in your tea and drink it. Here, here's a pill. I want you to take this pill. There's some things I want you to do. You know, I want you to go, you know, shoot around a golf, or I want you to go play blackjack for an hour. You know, eat a eat a you know a pile of onions. I don't know, whatever. He gives me things to do, and I go out. And because I trust this doctor, I do what he tells me to do. All right, and then I get well. Now, in that kind of a situation, notice this: I do not start mar- marching around and bragging about how I earned my health or how I achieved health by my good works. Instead, every time I meet anyone on earth who has Hansen's disease, I say to them, you have got to go to this doctor. He healed me. Okay? So here's an obedience that flows directly from trust and that, as as I used to say in some of the hymns, redounds to the glory, not of the person who got well, but of the doctor. Okay, this is sort of an illustration of the obedience of faith, and this is the kind of obedience that is required of those who would inherit the promised blessings of God in the Bible. I mean, this minus, is the kind. This yeah, is the sort the of onions obedience in the golf, of course, right? <laughs> well, mean, minus yeah, minus the uh, yeah, whatever I said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. You know. Okay. Go to Las Vegas and play blackjack. Shoot That's craps probably, for a while. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, who's your doctor? Anyway, this is the kind of obedience. Yeah, it's just an analogy. Illustrations go limping, as they say. It's an illustration, it's an analogy, but this is the sort of obedience that is required. This is the kind of obedience that Jesus has in mind when he says, he who would come after me must take up his cross and follow me. The idea being, if you trust me to be the one that is leading you to eternal bliss and happiness, you will take up a cross and you will follow. And this is the kind of obedience that Paul has in mind in that passage in Galatians, when he, where he basically says, if you want to reap the harvest of eternal life, Matt, you need to begin sowing to the Spirit in your life by perseverance and doing good. This right. is the path. It's the so obedience of faith. What kind of works is he condemning then? Okay, well, that's the second kind. And um, this is the one we're going to spend more time on. 
There's another kind of obedience that is not the same as this one. Okay, it isn't like the obedience that a patient uh, renders to a doctor that he trusts, an obedience that flows from humble, uh, from humility, really, and from faith, and that gives glory to the doctor. This a second kind is more like it's more like the obedience that an employee renders to an employer. So you got to you got to switch your mind around, okay? Yeah, maybe and even like, a disgruntled employee. Yeah, 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 yeah. It could be okay. I worked for a while. I've I've um I've lived many lives. I I worked for a while as a stockbroker, and I have to tell you, when I received my paycheck at the end of each month, I did not receive my check as though it were a gift from my employer. Um. No, it was something that was due me. It was something I had earned. It was something that was mine. And Paul talks about this kind of obedience when he says in Romans chapter 4, and I'm quoting now, Now to the one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift, but what is due. Okay, very different kind of works. On the one hand, in humble trust of the doctor, you go out and do what he says, and you get well, and you praise the doctor. This one. Because you're the employee, you work hard, and when you get paid, you don't say to your employer, thank you for your gracious gift. You say, I earned it. Yeah, and this okay? can you know work differently in different kinds of workplace environments. We're fortunately in a very awesome workplace environment, uh, but you know I've been in workplace environments where, let's just say, I got the paycheck, and I said, thank you, boss, and I was the people who honored him with my lips, but my heart was far from him. <laughs> If you know yeah. what I'm saying, uh, you yeah, know, totally. you can, you can yeah. go through and yeah. do what you have to do and get your paycheck, but it it's not because, you know, you worked because you just thought that this was just such an amazing situation. I mean, yeah, you, I mean, you don't want to know about my first few jobs. You just don't know. You don't want to know, Ken. No, those are the ones you got fired from. I understand. Uh, well, not all. No. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm trying to just draw a distinction, you know, and so I'm, I'm describing it in kind of a hardcore way. Okay. Between someone who does works, that is, they obey, but it's an obedience that flows from faith and that gives glory to the one who told them what to do and led them in the right path, and another kind of obedience that is not like that, where you're earning a wage and you have every right to brag in your, about your, your work and say, I, you know, I did the best work, I've earned this wage, all right, I'm going out you know, for you know, dinner or whatever. Okay, now, so let's compare. Okay, as we've seen then, while there were always some in the history of Israel who responded to God's call um, with the obedience of faith, as you know, too many, usually the majority, in fact, often the majority, did not. Um, they responded, though, with a form of obedience. They were careful to make sure that every male child bore the covenant sign of circumcision. That was obedience. They made sure to keep the Sabbath and all the festivals they made sure to adhere to the Mosaic laws regarding diet, regarding purification, the washing of cups and dishes. They brought their sacrifices to the temple, and they didn't necessarily view themselves as God's employees. <laughs> so they were working, you know, helping God out and earning a wage. But nevertheless, somehow their obedience wasn't like the obedience of those described in Hebrews chapter 11, definitely. Somehow it wasn't an obedience that pleased God. And Ken, before you get into this mm -hmm. next set of readings, lest people say, well, that sounds exactly what Catholics are doing today, right? You know, they, yeah. you know, they're just going through motions and rituals and this whole sacramental life is just a, you know, way to kind of, uh, you know, window dress for God. The passages you're about to read, we get thrown at us in the liturgy as Catholics every Lent as a way to kind of wake us up out of that mentality. 
Right. I mean, it, it, it's possible for anyone to fall, a Protestant or a Catholic, to fall into a, a kind of a shallow externalism mentality. And, and so, yeah, God would say these same things to us. So we read about this second group that I'm describing, those who have obedience, but it's the obedience of works. We read about them scattered through, and passages scattered throughout the prophets, and we're going to read a couple of them. First of all, in Isaiah chapter 1, and just, just take it in. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. And he's not talking to, to, the, to the people of Sodom. He's talking about the people of Israel here. He's calling them the rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of he goats. Remember, he commanded all of these sacrifices, by the way. God commanded these. Now he's saying, I do not delight in the, bull of, in the blood of bulls or lambs or he goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you, of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Okay, now notice first of all, notice how obedient these people were. They brought their sacrifices. They offered incense. They offered the blood of bulls and goats and sheep. They spread out their hands even in prayer, and yet none of this is pleasing God. In fact, God, uh, you know, God describes their works as though it were a stench in his nostrils. Okay? So there's something wrong with this obedience. Let, let's just leave it at that for now. There's something not right with these works, with this obedience. In Isaiah 66 now, this kind of obedience is described in slightly uh, different terms. Listen to this. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All of these things my hands have made. And so all these things are mine, says the Lord. But this is the man to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. On the other hand, he who slaughters an ox is like him who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like him who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a cereal offering like him who offers swine's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like him who blesses an idol. Now, Some strong here, stuff right there. I mean, wow. Yeah. And here we find a little bit of a hint of the employee mentality that I was raising with my, with my analogy. I mean, think about it. These people somehow, they imagine that God needs them to build him a house. Um, you know, they're working for God. Um, in their minds, God is lucky to have them. You know, God, God needs them so that they can make a house for him to live in. In other words, they do not view themselves as in need of God. I mean, think, think, think about it. They do not view themselves as the sick in need of a physician, and their obedience isn't the obedience of humble faith that trusts in the doctor, comes to the doctor for healing, realizes that he needs the doctor's healing, 
does what the doctor says, and then gives glory to the doctor for leading him down the path to health. That's not their obedience. And what's God's response to them? God basically says to them in this passage, you're right, this is strong stuff. God basically says, do you think that I need people to help me out? I mean, you think I'm looking for employees when I called you? Do you think I'm looking for people who can accomplish important jobs for me and earn a wage? You think I need people to build me a house? I mean, look around. Everything you see, I have created. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where where's this house you're going to build for me? And and then he says, the blood of bulls and goats. Do you think I? I mean, you think I'm hungry? Do you think I need these sacrifices? Is that why you're bringing them? He says instead, what I want from you, what I want are those who are humble and contrite in spirit, those who trust me and do what I command, those who tremble at my word. Very different mindset he's describing here. Ken, you and I are both parents. We want our children to clean the toilet. And, you know, hang up their clothes and do things. But we also want them to love us. If they do those things, if they're scrubbing the toilets like they're supposed to be doing and they're, you know, wiping down the baseboards and everything, but they hate us. I mean, you you can understand how that relationship would look. At the same time, in all of this, there is no sense that God is removing the obligations to participate in these sacrifices uh, i mean yeah, so what you're Jesus getting at is, is that yeah is the heart you know the exactly rend your hearts and not your garments um yeah it's the status of the heart in doing the obedience that 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 changes everything right in, in in both directions this is crucial notice that there is a contrast being drawn but it's not a contrast between faith and obedience okay it's not like you got faith on one side and you got obedience on the other the good guys are the ones who have faith, and the bad guys are the ones who have obedience. I mean, it, it's not faith and obedience that are being set in opposition to one another in these passages, but two kinds of obedience. An obedience of faith that flows from a humble, trusting heart, and an obedience of works that flows from a, a, a cold heart, um, focused on the externals, Maybe thinking, uh, hey, I'm God's employee, I'm working for God, I'm earning a wage, God needs me, etc., etc. Now, one more, just quickly, we want to look at in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 9, verse 26. Here's where God describes these same people that we've been looking at. He describes them as those who are circumcised in the flesh, but not in the heart, which I guess goes straight to the heart of what you just said, You're, you know, about the, the analogy of the child's obedience having love or not having love. This is what Jeremiah says, or God speaking through Jeremiah 9.26, Behold, the days are coming when I will punish all of those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. For all the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. Let's, Let's tie this together, okay? Because what we're contrasting here are two mindsets leading to two very different sorts of obedience, very different sorts of works. We can see here that the mindset of those that are described in these passages, Isaiah and Jeremiah, it is certainly, it is not the mindset of those who are described to us in Hebrews chapter 11. It's not the mindset of the humble, of those who sense their need of God, who place their trust in God and do what God tells them to do and then give God all the praise and all the glory when they receive the blessing. That is not the mindset. 
Rather, in fact, it's a mindset of the proud that we're, that's another way of saying, I guess, what, what we're reading. It's the mindset of those who imagine that God is going to bless them because they are the right people or the right sort of people, because they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they bear the covenant sign of circumcision, because they observe the Sabbath and the required festivals, because they are careful to keep themselves ceremonially pure, washing the cups and the dishes. In short, because they wear the badges of identity that marked them out as distinct from the filthy sinners, the Gentile nations surrounding them. It was pride. And what I was coming to understand, this is the pulling this together as far as the Old Testament is concerned, what I was coming to understand was that at least throughout the Old Testament, the contrast that we find is not a contrast between faith and obedience, but between the obedience of faith and the obedience of works, what I'm calling the obedience of works. It's not like, I'll put it this way, it's not like we find God in the Old Testament pleading with his people, please respond to me with faith, not with obedience. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, please. I mean, I know that the summary of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. Stop responding to me in that way. <laughs> And respond to me in faith. That's not what we that that's not the contrast that we're being presented with. Faith is never set in opposition to obedience. Rather, faith and obedience are treated as interchangeable in the Old Testament. Faith and the obedience that flows from faith. And these are set in opposition to a, the sort of obedience that we see rejected in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and elsewhere, because we could have quoted, we could have quoted from all the prophets. Otherwise, why is Jesus himself acting in uh, performance of the dead works of the law when he goes every year to Passover? Right. I mean, yeah, yeah I know. If if it's like, yeah, if it's a dead work, you know. Yeah. Why does the Son of God participate in it? Uh, yeah. There's there's yeah. there's a lot to get into this, but let's keep yeah, going because we got. I mean, that's kind of where we're making the next connection. We're looking at two kinds of obedience, and here's the thing that really began to get me: is that as I moved from the old Testament into the New Testament, I found John the Baptist preaching the very same message that Isaiah had been preaching and that Jeremiah had been preaching. Think about it. Right at the beginning of what we read about John the Baptist, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him at the Jordan River, what does he say to them? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not, this is the important part, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up stones from stones, children to Abraham. Okay, now we, we, need, we need to unpack that. Okay, John the Baptist doesn't say to the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming to him, he doesn't say, you people imagine that your obedience to God is what's going to save you? I mean, you imagine that loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself is the path? No, God rejects that. He wants faith alone. What John says to them is stop trusting in your status as Jews. That's, that's what he's saying. Stop trusting by saying, quit saying to yourselves, or do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He knows what's in their minds. What's in their minds is we have Abraham as our father. We are the good ones. Okay. And John doesn't say, I reject obedience. What I want, what God wants is faith alone. What John says to them is stop trusting in your status as Jews. 
I don't care whose descendant you are. I don't care that you're able to boast that you are among the circumcised. What God cares about, what God requires, is faith and the obedience that flows from faith. And that's why he summarizes by saying, repent and bring forth fruit, rather than saying, um, faith alone. Yeah, it's funny because sometimes you'll you'll get the sense, uh, or at least I had the sense that John the Baptist wasn't really an Old Testament prophet. He was a New Testament prophet bringing a new message, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Except everything that when you put it all together, you realize he is the Elijah who was to come, right? He is, you know, preaching the same words as Isaiah, preaching the same principles, the same concepts to these people who think that they, you know, that God's lucky to have them. Uh, because of the nature of their birth, uh, because they're better than the people down the street, uh, because uh, for whatever reason they think that they can just jump through the hoops and ju- just be fine. This is exactly why what, what all the prophets, major and minor, were complaining yes. about throughout the Old Testament. John the Baptist is just kind of like the reminder that what's about to happen is about to fulfill everything that you heard from those guys. Yeah, it, it, it's the, the people that we're facing with the Sadducees and the Pharisees here are the same people that Isaiah was facing and the same people Jeremiah was facing. And the message that John is bringing is the same message that Isaiah brought. And the, it, it, there's a continuity. There's a continuity. And it, and it continues. Because you come from John the Baptist to the teaching of our Lord. What do we find Jesus saying to the religious leaders in the temple? The same things that Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist said. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You've neglected the weightier matters. It sounds just like Isaiah, where he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, begin doing justice. Um, You know, not this, you know, attending all the sacrifices and whatnot, which my soul hates. You know, it's the same thing. You've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done, and, and to your point, without neglecting the others, you Blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the plate. Inside, they're full of extortion and rapacity. You blind Pharisee, first clean, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, that the outside may be clean. If we had time, if you were to go back and reread that passage in Isaiah 1 again, and then read this, you would just go, wow, it's a, it's a, he's saying the same thing. Now, I had been trained by Luther, by Calvin, by Reformation theologians ever since, to think of faith and obedience as though they were, you know, in opposition to one another. Because after all, Paul says, faith in Christ, not by works. Faith in Christ, not by works, lest any man boast. I was trained to think of faith and obedience as being in opposition to one another. You know, we either come to Christ by faith alone, or we come to Christ attempting in some way, some manner to earn salvation by our obedience. You know, faith and obedience are separated and they're never to be mixed. You know, you, you got to quarantine them both in their own realm. Well, what was beginning to dawn on me, Matt, was that whether I was reading Isaiah or Jeremiah or reading John the Baptist or reading Jesus, we do not find obedience to God being set over against in opposition to faith in God. What we find is faith and the obedience that flows from faith being set over against this obedience of works. That is the opposition that we find. And so, um, you know, to kind of, I guess, you know, cliffhanger or tantalize for next week, I'll answer ahead of time. Yes, what I'm going to suggest 
is that when we move from Isaiah to Jeremiah to John the Baptist to our Lord Jesus to the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul insists again and again in his letters that we are justified through faith in Christ and not by works or not by works of the law, yes, I'm going to suggest that Paul isn't saying in all of those passages that we are justified by faith alone apart from the need to be obedient to God. He isn't saying that there's nothing we have to do in order to inherit eternal life. Rather, within the context, the historical context, the theological context in which Paul was writing, I believe that Paul is standing directly in line with Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Jesus himself and saying nothing more or less than what they said in their own way and in their own situation. And we will turn to Paul next week. It can be confusing if you're out of the stream of Christian tradition and trying to see this on your own, Ken, because, you know, baptism fulfills circumcision, right? Mm -hmm. The Eucharist fulfills the entire passion of our Lord from the Last Supper to the crucifixion. There is no sacrament that fulfills and removes the obligation to obey, right? That's, yeah, that, <laughs> there's yeah. no, there's, there are things that Jesus replaces and puts away with, but one, one of those things is not obedience. That never stops being part of the equation. We may not, you know, do the, the, the pork and shellfish stuff that they were doing in Jesus's day. That stuff's been fulfilled. The obligation to obey yeah. was not taken away by the cross. It wasn't. And, and I guess I would close by just repeating the word continuity. That what I was coming to see is that there is a real continuity from the old covenant into the new covenant. That what we what is taught, what is presented to us in the old covenant, isn't reversed in the New Testament. You know, in the new covenant, but is fulfilled and made full and made rich um, in Christ. But you know, next week's going to be fun because ne next week then we're going to focus is specifically on Paul. And what I'm going to want to try to do is show from the details of Paul's letters, especially the letter to the Galatians, his letter to the Romans, and his letter to the Philippians, which are the three uh, epistles in which he supposedly argues for justification by faith alone most clearly. I want to go to those epistles and show that what he's teaching there is just like Isaiah was saying, and Jeremiah, and John the Baptist, and Jesus. Rend your hearts and not your garments. It's the same stuff. It's the same stuff. Well, that gives us a lot to look forward to because, again, after a couple of sessions where we've talked about Paul and faith alone, there are probably still people saying, but there's Paul that you left out. So we got Galatians coming. We got Romans coming. We got Philippians coming. In the meantime, we hope you've got you coming back to more episodes of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe. Please share with your friends. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback. And yes. check us out at chnetwork.org, the Coming Home Network, if you have any questions about the Catholic Church and if you're coming from any background whatsoever. Ken, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's great to be with you again. So long.